Alrighty, howdy, buenos noches, welcome one and all to the current edition of this recurring, recurring call-in gathering, it's called Gathering of Experts because everyone who shows up to this call-in room is by definition an expert. Hello, Richard. Buenos, buenos noches. How you doing, Michael? I'm okay. I arrived back in the grand old United States of America today. Uh-huh. And I have to say, the first thing I noticed is that the heat here is just more unpleasant than the heat in Spain. I don't know if it's just psychological or if it has something to do with the actual physical properties of the heat? No, it's the Mediterranean climate. So if you go to California, the heat is very, it's not as unpleasant. Yeah, it's dry heat, right. I I, I know, I mean, but I feel like people say, oh, it's just dry heat, and they're just kind of BSing. But it really does make a huge difference. Of course Um, it does, yeah. Because like in Spain the past two or three days, there was one day where it was – it got up to 99 degrees, and it didn't even feel particularly hot. Yeah. And yet, I got here around uh, 1 o'clock in the afternoon today, and um, the pilot announced that it was 85 degrees in Newark. And you get outside, and it just feels like horrible. I wanted to, get, I wanted to go immediately back to Spain. Yeah, there's not a lot of places in the world that have the dry uh, and warm climate. So you have, like, the Pacific Coast. You have, like, the Mediterranean region. I don't know much about the rest of the world. But, you know, there's not a, there's not a lot of this. Like most places where it's, uh, where it's hot, it's often very wet and it's very often unpleasant. So, yeah, I mean, this is one reason to live in California. There aren't, you know, many reasons besides that. But that's the, that's the big selling point. Yeah, yeah. I, I lived in L.A. for a little bit, and, and there were times where it, it got – I was there during a heat wave where it was hot enough that, <clears throat> you know, the, just the dryness of the heat outweighed whatever benefit you might get from – or the, the intensity of the dry heat outweighed whatever benefit you might get from the heat being dry. Mm-hmm. But, the, I mean, the, but the, the humidity really is just horrible. Um, that, that's really the, the decisive factor in whether a certain temperature is comfortable or not. And I know this is a brilliant insight that nobody's ever had before, but I was just—I was just—I uh, was, well, I was California struck by has it. nice weather. Yeah, Spain, nice weather. Who <laughs> knew? No. Yeah. Um, and then, interestingly, I—I had figured that I was going to have to go through. You know, fairly elaborate border patrol questioning again because the last time I re-entered the U.S., I had to sit there in this crowded little corridor at Newark Airport for like almost two hours because they had diverted me for second what's called secondary questioning by the uh, Center for Border Patrol. Uh, C- CBP, and you know, so I'm I'm sitting there watching, 
largely people who speak Spanish being questioned about whether they're, you know, illicitly entering the country for purposes of, you know, executing some kind of phony marriage arrangement or something. And finally, you know, they, they call me into this dingy, uh, sort of broom closet type room and I have a one-on-one and, and, and you know, phony and friendly interrogation with a border patrol officer who, you know, obviously they had done a deep dive into my social media and they were asking me about who I, who I was and where I had been. And, you know, they wanted to know if I had been to Ukraine. They wanted to know if I was aware how dangerous it is to go to Ukraine because it had just come out at that point that that guy, Willie Cancel, that was that was killed um, under mysterious circumstances still. I mean, those mysterious – those circumstances under which that 22-year-old was killed are still not clear. But they brought up that to me <clears throat> with the idea being that I – you know, my – I guess that my whole media – pretense was a facade and I was actually fighting in Ukraine. I mean, or that's what they claimed. Um, uh-huh. So anyway, it was a whole ordeal to get back into the country last time. And then this time you get in, you're off. I was offloaded onto an area of the airport where you could just digitally scan your passport into one of these little kiosks. And then they print out a receipt and then you just walk through. And you, I didn't even have to talk to an agent. It just seems like it's, Arbitrary. Anyway, I mean, again, not the most brilliant insight, but I, I <laughs> contrasting the uh, the elaborate hoops I had to jump through in order to re-enter the country last time versus the ease of this time was odd. Yeah. Well, and then they checked you out last. You said last the first time they they had looked into your social media and they knew you were like a journalist and they thought you were fighting in Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what, the, that's, that's what they claimed. I mean, they definitely had done deep research on me because they ha- they, the guy had a printout of all kind of stuff to ask me. Um, yeah, they uh, wanted to know who I had talked to while I was in. And, and I, I told them I hadn't even been to Ukraine. I was in Poland, but, you know, they didn't. I guess accept that at face value and wanted additional details. I mean, I think they knew I was a journalist, but they wanted to, I guess, double check or something, or who knows what the motive was. Maybe they just wanted to, you know, uh, instill a little bit of fear in me or something. Um, but yeah, but they they asked what they asked me if I had smuggled any weapons into Ukraine or if I had smuggled them out. Like they asked me if I had any equipment with me for that from the war. <laughs> oh, that's that's funny. They probably have some kind of checklist. Like you're in, you know, you're something to do with Ukraine, something to do with the war zone. Okay, then they go to the computer and say Michael Tracy, he's okay. Uh, and then the next time, I guess they just wave you through or something like that. I, I, I guess, but they 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 had they had in, they asked me information that was gleaned based on my Twitter. I know that for sure. <clears throat> um, but anyway. I'm back, and uh, what are you going to do next? Uh, you're going to write about the NATO. You're going to write about the Turkey uh, experience, right? That's yeah, yeah. So I decided to do uh, just sort of a. I'm calling it somewhat tongue in cheek a mini series on the NATO summit because 
you know, when I first started writing about it, I realized, okay, this is getting long, and I'm, I'm not. It would be stupid to pack everything into one post. So uh, might as well just maximize the, just milk this for all it's worth and do a, a bunch of different posts. So I'm probably going to, I've done two so far. I think I'm going to do two more. The next one is um, going to deal with, yeah, the interesting encounter I had with Turkey because, or rather the leader of Turkey, because as you might know, I'm now considered a national hero in Turkey. Hmm. I mean, I'm kidding, but I was, is uh after I had after I t- 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 had the encounter with Erdogan, uh, the Turkish national broadcaster tracked me down. They came to my because they were I guess they were the 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 team from this outlet T T N T N T. I think it's I think it's TRT. TRT 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 yeah not TNT yeah, TNT, TNT is, is where you watch TNT is yeah, uh, Shaq and Charles Barkley yeah yeah basketball basketball channel. <laughs> And uh, movies that they play 10,000 times. Um, yeah, that Turkish national broadcaster, they were still in Madrid the following day after the summit was was ended, and they got in touch with me. And they came, came to the hotel in Madrid that I was at and did this whole segment with me at the uh, in this court, outdoor courtyard in the, the hotel area. And I did long interviews with them. Uh, I had to actually do them twice. I, had, I did the same interview twice, once sitting and once standing because they needed separate footage for like the English version and the Turkish version. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but then they, they, they only took a small snippet from it in the uh, in the English version anyway. But it caused sort of a stir and... I, there was a there's just a, a giant flurry of coverage of me in particular from all these Turkish outlets, and there was a big debate over the translation of the phrase that Erdogan used because <laughs> in real time it was translated to me as he was saying that the proof is in the eating. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I thought it was proof is the pudding, and people might have heard this or seen this already if they've been following me. But yeah, I'm just going to do a. A uh, a piece on this, and the uh, just kind of reveal some details on the Substack because it's it's interesting, especially the contrast between you know the supposed authoritarianism of Erdogan versus the the uh, authoritarianism of Joe Joe Biden and Boris Johnson in particular, because their press conferences were highly choreographed and regulated, whereas Erdogan's was just free form. Um, so notwithstanding his reputation as an authoritarian, which is, I'm not disputing necessarily in other respects, it was, uh, notable to see the, the difference in the, uh, relative sort of quote unquote liberalism and how he ran his press conference versus these two tributes of liberal democratic values, Biden and Johnson. And, uh, as we know today, Johnson partial maybe because of his humiliation from not taking a question from me. His press conference at the NATO summit. He's uh, <laughs> he's done. He's resigned, but not resigned. I mean, it's funny. I don't know if you actually listened to what he said. Um, I was waiting with bated breath on the plane because uh, I, I I couldn't get internet. Also, they they decided, oh, we're just not going to offer Wi-Fi on the flight for the for whatever reason. Um, um, 
you know your second Substack. Yeah, the last Substack was so good. I mean, the portraits you you uh, the portraits you know you paint of these journalists. You're talking about these uh, female journalists. This uh, one from CNN, uh, Caitlin Collins, and I think yeah. so. What's her? What's her? Kelly O'Donnell. Nora Kelly O'Donnell, yeah. Sister. And NBC. they're talking about like what what color they should wear, so Biden will will call on them. And like the one gets called on, O'Donnell gets called on, and all she wants to talk about is Roe v. Wade. And you're like, why did she go to Madrid to ask him about Roe v. Wade? Literally nothing at all to do and with I, yeah, you, the substance of the summit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you ever think? Have you ever like thought about uh, like videotape, like just ca- taking a camera around, cameraman around with you? Because I would have loved to like watch these scenes. <laughs> uh I mean I, I guess I might have entertained the doing that if I had like an infrastructure set up or with me for an event like this, but it was really just me. Um so you just bring a guy who carries around a phone and Yeah, I mean I guess I, 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 I didn't want to be too I didn't want to be too conspicuous really. You uh-huh. know, I mean I I, I would have considered it. But at the same time, I would have liked to be inconspicuous um, as best I could just so as to be able to sort of nonchalantly observe these people. Yeah. So I think it would be strange to have a friend running around with a phone, like taking videos. But like you'd have but you would have to bring like a like an entire cameraman. And like then it wouldn't look that necessarily out of place. Or Well, I guess maybe the cameramen aren't pointing at the journalists or like that would be a little strange, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even taking the photos that I did, uh, you know, you have to kind of play it cool. Like, I mean, I, I, I included a photo in that most yeah. recent Substack of Caitlin Collins standing on her giant, on her big metallic box. Yeah. To do her live. Just, that was just so they would hear her question. Sure, they would like. Uh, they would be more likely to call on her. Is that? No, that no, 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 no. This was this was pre press conference. This was when people were just sitting there waiting for Biden to arrive. She propped herself up on this box. I mean, go if people want to pull it up. Look at this photo. Yeah. In the Substack. This is before the pr- the press conference even commenced. This is just her, uh, the, the only journalist who had the, you know, balls to do this <laughs> throughout the entire summit. Her standing up. Elevating her height uh, on this uh, by by propping herself up on this box, just so she could do a, a stand quote stand up shot for CNN. Um, and her camera person and you know pr- producer, they were like crawling around the floor and sh- they shooing everybody aside so that they didn't walk in front of the camera and mess up her ankle. And it's the most pointless possible thing. It's just her. Kind of uh, well, advertising her presence at this summit, and 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 making it look like she's taller than she is, so she could, I don't know. <laughs> well, so she could be emphasize lined up. her. It looks like her she, was, she was supposed to be lined up with the uh, podium, right? So people will look at her and they'll see the podium behind her, and they'll be like, "Oh, Caitlin Collins is standing on the podium." If they're looking, Caitlin Collins on the podium is higher than like it's above her, then it looks weird, right? So they're just doing. You know, TV, you know, they're doing, uh, you know, just trying to make the uh, shot look nice. Yeah, but it's just so stupid. <laughs> Why? That's TV. That's what you do. You try to get a, a good picture, a good background for the reporter. <laughs> okay. It's still stupid. I mean, it doesn't add anything at all to the informational content of her 
Well, it's like, like, like the Kyra, like the colors on the TV station. Like they don't add anything. Like it should just be in black and white. It's like okay. Okay, I just, I, I just, I just think if the viewers saw her from the angle that I saw her, they would laugh. She's standing no, propped up on the stupid box. That is funny looking. I agree. It's funny looking from from that angle. <laughs> they, they, they didn't want people to see that angle. Yeah, you got yeah. Ducey next to her. So her the font. No, that's not Ducey. No, yeah, was, no, that is that that was Ducey. That is Ducey. I'm looking yeah, at him. Just... It doesn't look like him. He looks he looks older. Well, sure? then how do you know it was him? Huh? If it doesn't look like him, how do you know it was him? No, it looks like him, but I ju- I'm just I'm just uh, I, like zooming in on the picture, and now it doesn't look like him. Oh well, no, it was him. It was definitely him. Maybe okay. he's maybe he's aged from all the strain of <laughs> having to follow around Joe Biden in his in the uh, pool. He looks, he looks much much old. Yeah, he looks much older. I don't know. He doesn't look. Yeah, he was he was uh, he was there. He was a member of good, in good standing of the White House pool. So they they treat the Fox News. Delegation well enough. You know, it's, it's his hair. His hair is usually so combed. Oh, is that Steve? Is that Steve Ducey? It's it's the child of Ducey. It's the it's oh, Ducey okay. Junior. Okay, it looks like the father. Okay, so the Ducey the junior, junior is the one the who is like the White House. The White House correspondent. Yeah, the Junior. He usually his hair is very like um, Ducey Senior is the Fox and Friends. Co-host. Yeah, yeah. But usually, I'm looking at Ducey uh, Junior, and now I'm looking at your thing, and it really doesn't look like. Okay, if you're sure, okay, but it really doesn't look like him. <laughs> I, I don't know how you could say it really doesn't look like him if you knew, if you recognized. Because him. I looked at the picture for quickly, and I'm like, oh, that's Ducey, and then I zoom in, and then I'm like, no way, that's Ducey, right? He just, okay, he, well, it was, blonde, it was he's a it was for sh- it, it was for sure him. I saw he was, I was in the I was on the <laughs> same right, shuttle right. bus. All right, all right. I believe you. <laughs> Those so we were both we were we were both masked up together at the at the <laughs> orders of the Policia Nacional. Did it? So they would they would they would uh, they police it, huh? They would they would tell you put the mask back on. Yeah, I mean, well, in order to actually enter the bus, you had to first show your passport and then show your press pass to the Policia Nacional and then show that you were masked, and then then they let you on the bus. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. But that I was, was at restaurants. Yeah, but only for only, only for those six minutes. Was it enforced to wear the mask? Uh, yeah, I was at a restaurant where I saw like nobody, none of the staff was wearing a mask today except one guy, and it was like completely under his nose. I mean, these people are are just silly. I mean, I don't know why it's the it's like everywhere becomes the airport. Uh, I've always thought the airport security and sort of procedures were sort of humiliating, and now like the masks, it drives me crazy because they do it everywhere. Yeah, I, mean, I think a lot of people just sort of wear it as a as a fashion accessory now. Um, it's not a very nice just around fashion. their neck or something. I mean, I mean they've done that for a while, but now I, I think the the last holdout is just kind of like the feel or use of the feel of it. Yeah, um, I see one or two. I, I see one or two like maskers in your photos from the last Substack, and they're all they're all men, and they all are. Um, they don't seem like they're important. So it seems like. Yeah, it seems like nobody's really doing this anymore, which thankfully, except when they have to. Yeah, I think I, I, mentioned, I mentioned to you last time when I, w- I did the, this call live from the media center that uh, something, I think less than 5% were of the people at the summit were, were masked. Uh, and they all were doing it voluntarily. So these are, these are, the, these are the, the last holdouts who actually just want to wear them. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, 
I love your yeah. piece. I love when you talk about the uh, the difference between the Biden press conference and every other one. Like the other ones are just like nobodies. You could just stroll in, sit down next to him. Biden <laughs> yeah. is treated as as royalty. Like you can't even get close to the king. He calls on five, you know, specially selected uh, American news outlets um, as answers their questions and then moves on. I mean, it's very. It's it's a poignant picture. I mean, it's like these are these are colonies, like we say that, but like it really is a. Uh, I mean, it really there really is like you know these these are not real partners. I mean, it's so clear that that's the case. Yeah, like I uh, when we talked last time, I, I told I mentioned to you that I just kind of uh, happened to to stroll into this press conference with the Polish president. And it was hardly even advertised that it was happening. Um, like uh, I, I was really, I really just, just randomly happened upon it. And the photo that I posted shows that like, like seventy five percent of the room was empty. It's one of the, it was one of these smaller kind of side rooms that he'd been shunted into. And that very day, it was announced that the U.S. is going to be establishing a permanent base in Poland. And, you know, so this is a fairly big deal. It's going to be a lo- big long-term expenditure for the U.S. And, you know, when you establish a new base, that means there's going to be all these bidding opportunities for the defense contractors to provide all kinds of services from, you know, food to uh, lodging to to weapon systems. So it's a, it's a, it's a big cash cow. And so there are plenty of questions you might have for the Polish president, even from an American perspective, right? Um, but it was just – it was this meagerly attended press conference. Nobody was regulating who can go in or out, and uh, they didn't even provide translation services for it. So uh, you know, I couldn't tell what the hell they were saying. And you know, I would have liked to ask a question, but I, I, I really, I practi- for all practical purposes, I couldn't really. Um, and yeah, so then you contrast this with Biden, which was like the, this big marquee event where you know it was it was announced ahead of time the special procedures that you had to go through in order to be able to get to this press conference. You know, then these procedures were not required for any other leader or official, as far as I could tell. Um, yeah, uh, Biden is, you know, he's shuttle, he's uh, ushered out immediately after taking the a grand total of five questions from five preordained media outlets that he got a list telling him who to call upon. Um, and so, yeah, well, I mean, the way I put it was that there, there's so these subtle indications of enduring a U.S. primacy. And uh, even, even now, after the summit, when uh, after... Uh, An invitation for Finland and Sweden to formally join NATO had been extended, based on the charter of, of NATO. Like so, based on the protocols that were established by the original treaty back in the forties, uh, um, the every other country has to submit its ratification materials. You know, accepting or approving the admission of Finland and Sweden. Not to Jens Stoltenberg in Brussels. They actually have to transmit those materials to the State Department in D.C. Like the U.S. is the one who runs that process for the formal admission of additional member states. 
So, you know, while nominally, you know, the NATO headquarters is in Belgium, I mean, that's just the, the sort of administrative unit that happens to be located in Belgium. I mean, who's Jens Stoltenberg? He's just this administrator, right? Or this, uh, you know, minor political functionary. Really, the NATO is run out of D.C. <coughs> Thus, or hence, the requirement that these formal ratification materials, because uh, they were just submitted this past week by Norway and Iceland and uh, Denmark, I think. And so, you know, they have to ferry them to, to, to Washington, not, not, to, not to Brussels. So, you know, it, it does kind of sort of fly in the face of a lot of the pretenses around NATO, which is that it's supposed to be this thoroughly egalitarian alliance. And, you know, these now 30 member states get together and they democratically decide on how to best ensure their, you know, mutual security interests and all this. And they don't like to just acknowledge up front that the U.S. is calling the shots because that would seem to, you know, denigrate their sovereignty or denigrate their significance as constituent partners within the alliance. And yet, you know, of course, for all practical purposes, it just is the U.S. Not least because, and this hardly gets acknowledged either for some reason, even though it's easily findable information, not least because the actual military command structure, so like the meat and potatoes of NATO, that's run by the U.S. I mean, the, the, the chief general is, necess- uh, is, is always, by necessity, an American general. Meaning the the, pers- the 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 official who actually runs the the military command structure of NATO is an American general who reports ultimately not to Jens Stoltenberg, or not to the you know prime minister of Belgium, but to uh, you know the commander in chief of the U.S. military or the U.S. president. So it's um, you know it's a, it's an appendage of the of the U- of U.S. hegemony with some kind of with, with superficial. Uh, accoutrements to make it seem like it's this just uh, egalitarian alliance that the U.S. happens to be a member of, which is, of course, you know, yeah, a total, well, they, a total they, they, non sequitur. They want to be junior partners, right? Because when they want to push back, like Erdogan can make their, you know, their life difficult. Um, the, uh, you know, when they didn't want to go into Iraq, when, uh, you know, uh, G- uh, Germany and France were against the Iraq war, uh, you know, Iraq didn't end up being a NATO, uh, didn't end up being a NATO mission, unlike Afghanistan. Uh, so it's 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 a it's a complete vol- it's a completely voluntary uh, subjugation. We must think at some level, like even if we disagree with the Americans on some things, like you know they're they're you know the legitimate leaders of this you know this Western alliance. It's it's really it's it's a vol- I mean it's a it's a colonization, but it's completely voluntary, right? Yeah, it is. Um, well, because they're they're voluntarily signing up for an arrangement whereby the U.S. will essentially subsidize their quote defense, um, which is why there's been this you know off and on controversy around NATO member states not paying their fair share, or you know freeloading, or you know failing to uphold this ostensible commitment to allocate at least two percent of their GDP toward defense. Um, you know, it's funny. Trump was treated as like he was going to destroy the alliance as we know it. Biden ran in 2020. 
warning that if Trump were reelected, NATO would cease to exist. Meanwhile, Trump's whole policy angle on NATO was to, you know, browbeat Germany in particular, but also other countries into upping their defense spending to fortify NATO. And it was the same policy that Obama had, except Obama, you know, advocated the policy in less brash in a less brash rhetorical style. But for some reason, with Trump, it was this existential crisis for NATO. And of course, I think a lot of the European functionaries did find Trump, you know, troubling for whatever reason, even though the policy was just total, you know, pretty much just total continuity with with Obama. And, uh, you know, Biden has the same policy now, essentially. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a voluntary arrangement on their part, and it's you know within their rational self-interest, probably at least in a sense to to just yeah. uh, to just you know feed feed off the largesse of the U.S. And by the way, although Iraq wasn't a NATO mission originally with the invasion, NATO did send NATO did take part in the Iraq war starting in two thousand four, where they sent this invi- a vi- quote unquote advisory mission. So NATO was really a co- was a combatant. Uh, in a sense, in in Iraq, and you know there were other NATO because uh, what what happened was NATO ended up supporting the Polish military incursion in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so uh, although they didn't sign off at first on the invasion component, they they were a military enter- element of the wider enterprise of occupying Iraq. Yeah, they tried. They were training the Iraqis, right? Um, they were training the Iraqis, but yeah, they weren't. I mean, they weren't taking major casualties. Not not, no, not under no, the NATO were. command. Yeah, they were not under NATO command. NATO members, and you know, Georgia. Yeah, yeah, and those other countries had something. To do. Yeah, it's. Uh, I guess. I mean, I guess the question is if that's what these countries want. Like, this is just you know, this is what they want. They want to subjugate themselves to the U.S. Uh, is there what bothers you? Is it the hypocrisy, the sort of the the lying? Because it's not a dishonest thing to say our allies are united if all the allies want to just you know do what Washington says, right? That is a real alliance. It's not being forced upon them. No, it's not forced upon them. And you know, one of the arguments that we made as to you know, trying to rebut this idea that NATO expansion was the cause of the Ukraine war or something. One of the arguments you'll hear is that, oh, these these former Soviet states use their own agency to seek to join NATO. Um, and you're denying that agency if you're saying that this was purely a U.S. endeavor or something, and you know the U.S. simply wanted to expand NATO in order to further encroach onto Russia for its own hegemon- hegemonic reasons. Um, and you know, I think the whole idea that you're denying the agency of these countries by pointing out the U.S. has hegemonic interests in expanding the alliance is ridiculous. But it is it is true that you know these countries actively sought to join NATO, or at least their security establishments did. And you know probably a, a, a wide swath of the of the general public would like to join NATO as well because it's a it's a pretty good deal for them. I mean, look at the outsized international influence now of a, of these Baltic states. Um, they have to be kind of catered to, and and when they when like Lat, Latvia joins NATO, uh, which happened in 04, 
with that is established this whole professional class within these countries to support the NATO membership. So think tanks end up sprouting up um, and it becomes these, these uh, like a professional feeders, uh, a feeder system for security state professionals that would not otherwise be available. Um, so they can, you know, confer with officials from the U S and the UK and everything and everywhere else in this, um, formal structure. So yeah, there's, there's definitely an incentive for these countries to join NATO. It doesn't undermine the idea that it's still an extension of us primacy, but, um, sure. There's a, there's a lot of advantages that come at least for the constituents that directly benefit from NATO membership. Let's go to questions sooner than we might otherwise, so we don't get reprimanded. I just want to make a quick point about the, um, apparent resignation of Boris Johnson because if you, if you actually listen to what he said he didn't use the word I hear for I uh, hereby resign um, and it's unclear when he'll actually leave office uh, and there's speculation that he might actually try to remain in office uh-huh. despite having nominally resigned like the, his former advisor Dominic Cummings who's now this I don't know if you're familiar with him but he helped no, he basically course, yeah. ran yeah he ran the Brexit campaign, the Leaf yeah. campaign. Dominic Cummings said I was one of like the five people you need to read to understand uh, American politics. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Favorable towards Cummings for that. Yeah. Uh, sort of an unusual guy, kind of hard to parse what he's saying some of the time. <laughs> um, but uh, he, uh, he, was a f- he had a firsthand familiarity with Boris Johnson and he was, you know, his basically top political advisor for a time and then resi- uh, left the government in dramatic fashion is now one of his chief antagonists. It, it, it's, like, it's as though, uh, you know, it will be like Ron Klain resigned from the Biden administration and became like a ferocious critic of Biden um, or, or Steve Bannon, you know, which I guess kind of did happen with Trump in a way, but although yeah. they became frenemies rather than overt <laughs> antagonists. Um, but anyway, Dominic Cummings said that, you know, if, uh, Boris is going to try to use the fact that there's a war happening in Ukraine and the UK is supposedly playing this leadership role to, uh, just wait, wait it out and see if maybe he can cling to some justification for staying in office. I mean, even just yesterday at prime minister's questions, you know, which is this weekly event in the parliament where the prime minister is directly questioned that people are probably familiar with. Boris said that the, the only circumstance under which he could see himself resigning was if he were no longer able to continue supporting Ukraine. Um, and he, he's used this argument for months now when he's been pressured to resign saying look well, we you know we're, we're supporting the war effort we're this integral player and so you know the i guess the idea that cummings has floated which seems plausible to me is that because of the ambiguity you know constitutionally in the uk over like under like when does the prime minister actually have to leave office and who would the queen then call upon to form the new government it's not as expressly delineated as it is in the u.s um you know Boris could somehow, you know, backtrack or something, with, especially if it's, you know, the leadership election 
for the new uh, head of the conservative party could last months and um, so he could, he could still cling to power and, and use Ukraine as a justification. That's what I'm saying, essentially. So the guy of the Ukraine thing, the uh, the guy who they say is the um, is the front runner to replace him is Ben Wallace, yeah, uh, who is the defense minister, who yeah. is more unhinged than uh, Boris is on Ukraine. There's a recent, a recent called Putin a lunatic. He said he had. Uh, you know, a small. He calls us small, small man mass. syndrome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And this guy. So this guy is. Uh, yeah, the British. You know, uh, Ministry of Defense is just taking. A, you know, a very. Uh, you know, view that this is basically World War Two fascism. Uh, good. You know, good versus evil. Uh, so yeah, it doesn't look like we're going to get any. Uh, any uh, shift in uh, the Ukraine policy, regardless of what happens in the UK. Well, I mean, it's unclear, right? Because. Obviously, Wallace has been carrying out the policy of Johnson for these past several months, and he's just as stalwart in his rhetoric about Ukraine. But Johnson personally had some you know, specific and unique motives to engage in the Ukraine conflict in the way that he did, you know, especially if he perceived a political advantage to it in that you know, it would insulate him from some of his domestic problems. And... Therefore, he forged this, you know, personal relationship with Zelensky. He did this personal, these personal diplomatic trips to Ukraine. He was the first Western leader to show up physically to Ukraine once the war started and meet with Zelensky in this, you know, triumphant PR uh, offering where they strode around together in Kiev. Mm-hmm. Um and it, you know it's not clear that Wallace, even though they've they you know support the same policy, would have, would have that, those same kinds of incentives, especially because you know the the fruits of Johnson's trips have been to personally uh, urge Zelensky not to engage in diplomacy. So basically, Johnson was integral in seeming to have blown up the the diplomatic process that had been underway, you know, vis-a-vis Turkey for some time. Uh, so you know, would Wallace have the same inclination? I'm not sure exactly. So I mean, it could it could harken some kind of potential shift just in the the like the personal intensity of the commitment of the prime minister to engage on that level. But yeah, probably overall, the, the policy is not going to change. Yeah, uh, that's yeah, that's that's my sense too. Yep. Okay, let's go to uh, Roger. Roger, you are up. Hi, Michael. Can you hear hey, me? how are you? I'm fine. Um, spoken to you before, actually, but um, yeah, I recall. Oh, good. Was it that interesting? Uh, <laughs> but um, so um, no, I, I, I think you made a, a few good points. I'm, I'm going to congratulate you on your your question to um, Erdogan, um, and I also. I uh, was quite interested. Um, can you hear me? Oh yeah, I can hear you. I just uh, I just yeah, muted myself so, yeah. so to eliminate the okay. ambient noise while you're speaking. <laughs> yeah, no, it's okay. I uh, I use the ambient noise as a guide. So um, no, but uh, you know, it's, it's a very important question, right? And I I thought it was quite interesting um, that um, we have leaders in the West that are failing us. Let's say. So, I mean, Johnson's gone. Johnson made a big debacle about, uh, 
you know, Putin must go, uh, oh, you know, all this, all that. And then, you know what, he's gone. Um, then, you know, I'm just now waiting for the next uh, Western leader to fail. Um, so it seems like a sort of downward spiral. Um, and, you know, <laughs> um, as I, I've had this argument with, with family and friends and, and I'm pretty, you know, on a limb here because I'm, I've been saying since the start, this is berserk. And, um, you know, now they're all feeling it, let's say. I've got a brother-in-law in Germany and he works for a very big industrial company. And at the beginning, he was um, obviously um, buying, let's say, drinking the Kool-Aid. Um, now he doesn't talk to me anymore. So, um... <laughs> well, this is unfortunate. This whole this whole Trump era phenomenon in the U.S., it, where families are being ripped apart, seems to have also stopped. taken I mean, hold in Europe. Yeah, but it hasn't stopped. It wasn't that I was, you know, going, "Oh, you're an idiot for thinking this." I was just saying, I don't think it's going this way. Um, and in, instead of he, he just went, "Oh." you know, Poodler, and he actually sounded like a Nazi when he shouted at me. Um, but uh, uh, um, it's my sister, so I, you know, I, I didn't react. <laughs> so, but, but it is, and, and you get it as well, and I watch it. I, you know, I, I, I'm not, I find you interesting. I'm not your... You know, I'm not a fan in that sense. I don't follow you around. But sometimes I drop it. I, I follow you, in a sense, on Twitter, but I drop in every so often. And you get this all the time. And, you know, it's this constant attack. And um, I see Dor get it. I see Mate get it. I see Blumenthal get it. Greenwald. And... Look, you might be the biggest, you know, think in, in the history of the world, but, you know, you're actually saying something that's correct. And I've noticed this, especially because, you know, if I was a chess player or if I was a strategist in a Putin government, let's say, I would think, well, if the West are playing the propaganda game, I'll play the truth game. Because once all is done and said, it will leave the West in a mental state that is even worse than what we've got. So I'm not saying that Russia is good. Russia's not good. Russia's got lots of problems. I'm not saying... But what they've done is very clever because... Okay, when, you know, they, they use... Uh, Silence. So, you know, when the ship got sunk, they didn't release the information until later. Okay, that's fine. But they didn't lie. And yeah, you know, one of, the, one of the features of this whole frenzy around alleged Russian interference, now dating back to the 2016 election, is this 
supposed idea that Russia is aiming to exacerbate fissures within U.S. or, I guess now, Western society. And that's one of their propaganda aims, and so they're using their you know, social media bots and their RT segments to worsen uh, these divisions in a U.S. society. And the idea, but of course, you know, maybe that is true in a very, very marginal way, but those divisions already exist. And it really, it should be the job of of a journalist to, I would think, probe some of those divisions for, like substantive comment uh, content and to elucidate what they show about exactly. the contradictions that you know uh, Western political culture are, are now seemingly predicated on. Yeah, but, but that, that's an interesting thing. Uh, Kathleen Johnson said, um, and she, I'm glad she did it because you know I couldn't be fucking asked to do it. I've got a day job, but she actually dug up those records uh, where the uh, from uh, you know the the guardian even was reporting on it in 2011 that the us had set up massive bot farms to um, influence social media and then it goes back to the newland statements or, or whatever yes that's exactly from their playbook well yeah and I just uh, you know on the plane today I read this report that somebody from the European Parliament had sent me it was this you know left faction within the European Parliament had they they done this report on as like a pre a preemptive rebuttal of a forthcoming report you know it's coming down the line on supposed Russian interference in the EU and their point was that you know if you look into the these this constellation of think tanks associated with NATO now They've been open about how they are now using uh, social media as a new uh, frontier of their own psychological warfare operations. I mean, this should be obvious. I mean, this shouldn't come as a surprise. But they're engaging in the same kind of interference that they're saying is this existential threat when it happens to be coming from Russia and or China. It has to be because if if you understand – and you live in Europe now. Well, you spend a lot of time in Europe now. You must understand this. You've got to get to the Greeks. You've got to get to the Portuguese. You've got to get to the Italians. You've got to get to the Romanian. You've got to get to all these different languages. And there's only one institution that can do that. It's not Russia. Well, Russia could possibly do it. But the only wealthy one that could possibly contain all those languages and does is the we're. We're doing it to ourselves. We're propagandizing ourselves. Yeah. All right. Well, thank, thanks, Roger. Going to go to the uh, always interesting Take to talk it to easy, you. Mike. Going to go to the next caller. You know, one one quick point on on the UK situation is a thought. A thought that occurred to me earlier today is that you know if if these uh, British po- if these British politicians really care as much as they claim to about Ukraine, and they think that it's this mo- it's this you know, a cataclysmically vital war that they're leading the Western effort to ensure the victory of Ukraine in, then maybe they would have been a bit more reluctant to just topple the government 
and create uncertainty around the war effort. I mean, even if there is going to be continuity with whoever the next yeah. conservative leader is, it, it does it does suggest that you know maybe they're not as as uh, sincere in their claimed conviction around the importance of this war if they're willing to allow domestic needs well, to to supersede you know just continuing well, I mean, the government as as it is currently uh, constituted well, actually you, you you could extend that that that's actually a fucking diversion from actually dealing with the problems within the country yeah um okay so kale kale you are up okay kale i think there might have been some kind of glitch i apologize for that richard you have a thought uh not really, no. We can go to the okay. next person. Let's go to Win. Okay, Kale's back. So, got you. Win, you're hey, up. Hey, hey, Michael. Hey, Richard. Um, hey. Hope, hopefully, you guys didn't talk about this. I wanted to ask you about the Kaylin Collins observation, Michael, you met, uh, you, you had over at the NATO summit. Um, I do find it quite ironic that she wasn't she just recently elected or promoted some White House correspondence presidency role. Um, yeah, I saw her campaigning for that. Was she actually elected? I saw Jake yeah. Tapper endorsed her candidacy for whatever that role is exactly. No, I think I think I think she was elected because she posted it on her you know Instagram story today, which kind of is kind of part uh, of my question. Is well, congratulations to Caitlin. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so much of the stuff, at least with these television journalists, it's it's the kind of the performance takes precedent over the actual substance. Um, of the work. And I guess I found it ironic because I remember she was a signatory to this, um, you know, petition that was going around. I think maybe Peter Baker first reported on this, but Biden has taken like less interviews than any president ever in modern history, significantly less than Trump. And so it's ironic that, you know, less than Obama and Bush as well. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just ironic that, you know, these are the signatories and here she is now as like this, very prominent um, position as this president or whatever, and then having the opportunity to talk to the, you know, question the president or even offer some serious, you know, kind of questioning. Um, actually, she's just spending her time either asking the same questions she already asked before or just, you know, I guess trying to find a stoop to stand on. So I'm interested in kind of hearing your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I mean... <laughs> That's the thing. I mean, even even if half of these journalists were given greater access, there wouldn't be any like concomitant informational value. So, like, let's say Caitlin Collins was able to more regularly get a hold of Biden. I mean, who cares? I mean, she wouldn't actually be doing a service. Like at this summit, what she did was, and I mentioned this in the Substack piece, but was you know after Biden had left the stage so he was out of earshot he was not with he was not in a position where he could have even responded to Caitlin's question but what she did because she was on camera for CNN was she just be, like theatrically shouted a, additional questions at an empty stage and her question was essentially okay what about Brittany you know Griner who's this WNBA player who's in custody in Russia and you know apparently just admitted I don't know how much veracity to assign to this admission but she admitted apparently possessing hashish uh, oil in in Russia which is the reason that she was wasn't it uh, wasn't it resin wasn't it resin like resin it wasn't uh, like the 
actual. Uh, it wasn't actually anything besides that, right? Oh, was it just? The, I, I thought I read that it was. I thought it was, it was the oil. oil. I thought it was hash oil. Yeah, yeah I thought it was hash oil. Well, in any event, she admitted to violating the law today, um, but said that you know it was unintentional and she just carelessly brought these items into Russia because she was in a hurry to get on a flight or something. Um, uh-huh. But you know, basically, all all Brittany Griner, uh, all uh, Caitlin Collins did was do this theatrical performance where she shouted a question that was more or less, what about Brittany Griner to Biden? And so he was then going to give a substantive answer that couldn't have just been gotten from a press release from the State Department or something. Because that's the level on which Caitlin Collins thinks about her job. Okay, just get whatever quick soundbite you can that can be used on CNN, and then she can beam in from her live shot and give a little preamble before it's shown on air. Um, so, I mean, the fact that she's now apparently, I, I have to double check this when I haven't, didn't see if she actually won this election, although who cares, but let's say she did. Um, it's actually fairly representative of the overall orientation of the press corps. So I'm actually pleased that she won if she did win, because it kind of, uh, underscores the superficiality of this whole traveling crew of journalists who by and large are just. They're not looking to have a, a substantive exchange. I mean, they'll they'll engage in superficially critical questioning that you know maybe could trip Biden up theoretically, but really, uh, on the whole, doesn't actually get to any underlying contradictions because they're just not cognizant enough of those contradictions. Yeah. So, no, yeah. I mean you're totally right. And the last point I'm going to make of this, and I'll move on. Um, I just like looked up how old she is. She's 30 years old. Um, Natasha, you know, Bertrand or whatever is 30 years old. Like you mentioned this, you try to figure out an explanation on your, whatever recent call in about, you know, why they're acting like this. Is it careerism? Is it complacency? It's, you know, obviously an, a comp, you know, all of the above, but like to have the most significant television journalist be 30 years old, um, just creates a huge disincentive to actually engage in the sort of analysis that I guess only you're doing when you're there. Well, I think thirty-year-olds can do good work. I think we're in this society. I think we're we're a little bit too old for most things. I think you're you're energized and your brain is sharpest when you're young. So I don't think her age. No, no, I, I, I mean I mean a disincentive in in the in the case that if you are you know you're very young in your professional career and you've already received such a significant job like uh, kind of promotion at a really early age, like why why would you want to rock the boat with? the president when you're 30, maybe a little bit older um, in your career because you're like, you're like I'm going to rely on my principles now, but not when you're younger. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think there is something to that, actually. You know, it doesn't mean that a 30-year-old can't do a perfectly good job, maybe even a better job than older people in this kind of role. But having ascended to, you know, what she probably regards as the peak of the profession at a relatively early age it kind of reinforces the careerist incentives that she's operating under. Well, I've heard, I've heard, the, pre- I've heard the press, uh, I've heard the White House press, I, I heard it was something that you move on from anyway. I don't think it's the, seen as the peak of uh, one's journalistic 
career because I remember Helen. Remember when Helen Thomas would always yell at like George W. Bush, and like all these you know liberals were like, "Yay!" You know, there's this woman criticizing George Bush. And I remember reading articles at the time, people saying like, you know, she's like too old to be in the White House press corps. Like, you know, everyone else like moves on, and she's just like, you know, she's grandstanding uh, in there. Um, and she was, and so I don't know if that's actually that that prestigious. I think it is seen as sort of like work that's not necessarily that that important. Um, well, um, it should be. I think it's still seen as somewhat prestigious. Uh, it could use, it's often used as a it's a springboard uh, right as a springboard to some kind of bigger all. job like Jake Tapper was the White House correspondent for ABC for a while I think he was probably in his 40s at the time and you know Jonathan Carl and some of these other people they do this and then yeah they can host a TV show afterwards or something um, yeah. yeah, that's not something you do. I mean, they're not like you know, a lot of very old people. In the press I think Wolf. I think even you know back in the day, Wolf Blitzer was in this position for CNN, where he was at you know at the in the White House briefing room asking questions for you know Reagan's for the Reagan administration or something. Um, so I mean, I guess how you, it depends how you define prestige, but there is, uh, and it is I guess relatively younger people who would probably be doing this. So you're not you you know it's not going to be filled with journalists in their sixties. Um, but I think Caitlin Collins w- would be still somewhat young at 30 to be this, you know, the head of this press association or whatever it's called. Um, and there is, there is a sort of a trend in journalism over the past 10, 15 years or something where younger and younger journalists without a whole lot of experience are in roles that probably w- would have come to them later in their career in an earlier era. So, for example, you know, when um, Ben Rhodes, this Obama foreign policy advisor, coined the term the blob for the foreign policy establishment in the early 2010s, mm-hmm. he was saying, um, I don't know if he coined it exactly. I think he did. But based, well, one point he made in an article kind of associated with this is that it's so much easier to manipulate journalists nowadays because you'll get, you know, just these journalists in their mid-20s who don't know anything, never really studied foreign policy, but just end up in this position where, you know, they're supposed to take on this phony adversarial role with, uh, with the, you know, the State Department or the National Security Council or something. And whereas back in the day, it would have been a bit more of a prestigious journalism role and you would have had more experience, maybe older journalists doing it who, who couldn't be so easily cowed. And so sort of similarly, now it's kind of like an entry-level job to cover presidential campaigns. Um, yeah. So a lot of the journalists who, are, you know, who tra- uh, follow presidential candidates around – and ask questions in a gaggle or are in the, you know, the designated pool or something, they also tend to be young. I mean, I've been in these scenarios and uh, it's, it's younger people. And, you know, every now and then you get a younger journalist who can do a decently competent job and is, is uh, reasonably well, skeptical or whatever. campaign seems like it would be easy. It seems like it's a thing that it would be like the easiest thing to do in journalism because they're not based on substance. They're not based on real policy. They're based on traveling and polls and you know image so it seems like that's actually a perfect uh entry-level job for the most inexperienced people i i guess but you know like in you know it would have been you know to cover the presidential campaign of you know like the democratic or republican nominee it would be a hot it would be like one of the more 
senior journalists doing it, right? But now it's been sort of farmed out to younger journalists who just, you know, tweet banal updates. So, I mean, I guess the point is that there has been sort of a shift in how journalistic roles are sort of uh, generationally allocated, whatever that means exactly. Yeah, I just, I'm Um, thinking, what do all journalists do? I I don't... I don't see many old journalists. I'm thinking of like New York Times and bylines. I don't know. Like, do people just not stay journalists for forever? Because I, I, most of the journalists I think of are are pretty young, even like the ones that just write, you know, the ones who write for the, uh, like bylines as regular in the paper. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of like 70 year old, you know, 70 or 80 year olds doing that. Well, I mean, they'll become editors probably. Um, You know, I think New York Times. well, I mean, I think I think there are, there are some, there are plenty of editors in their sixties, probably at the New York Times. I'm not sure exactly. Some of the big yeah, name but reporters all in the become editors because there's fewer editors than journalists, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it is concentrated as a younger as a younger job nowadays, uh, especially because it's so intermingled with technology that if you didn't grow up using, it's not going to come as intuitively to you. Um, so that could be a disadvantage for for older journalists. Um, you know, I, I'm I, I'm just saying that I think the industry was structured differently in years past, which is you know is not a incredible insight, but <laughs> it, it, the 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 roles that were given out were I th- to, based on perceived prestige. It was just a different formula. Than it than it is now, so and that has different effects, I guess. Um, okay, let's go to Phil. Hello. Phil. Hey, yeah, Phil, Michael. you're up. Yep, you're up. All right. All right. Good evening, Michael Richard. Uh, I just had a, a, a thought as you were uh, in your travels uh, around the uh, European. Uh, or what, what we might begin to call the Eurasian Peninsula at some point. But uh, did you get a sense as you were talking to people, just normal people around, that there is a difference between this kind of crazy narrative that is being pushed across the top and, uh, and what real people must know? Because Americans, we're so distant. I mean, we don't know Europe. We don't know the difference between, you know, uh, Transcarpathia and uh, Georgia and, and so on. I mean, it's all meaning. It's just abstract here. Uh, but Europeans do. I mean, Serbians know. Croatians know. Uh, Polish people know. Uh, they, they've got the history. And what I'm look, looking for is, you know, is there a kind of a, a normal reaction to some of the crazy narrative that's going on i mean the idea that you're gonna you know you push the russians back to moscow or goofy stuff you know or that putin's gonna go and you're gonna get someone better <laughs> or, or more favorable which tells me that they don't know anything about russians or they don't read russian uh, they don't even look at russian social media which is kind of fascinating but do you know what I'm saying? I mean, I can't believe that there's a European leader that really believes that they're going to go and do what Biden says he wanted to do with Putin. I just 
By the way, I just saw a news alert that Shinzo Abe was shot. Did you see this? Really? Yeah. No, I say, didn't. And I just no. got an Instagram channel from uh, one of the things I follow for Russia updates. It says he's reported to be unconscious following an assassination. Now, the mainstream news stores say he's been shot. Uh, let's see. So it says, yeah. He's, well, he's not the current prime minister, right? No, he's not. He was just replaced. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean that's a that's an interesting development, huh? Well, you know, on on the point of do Europeans have the same sort of radicalized, maybe fantastical view of the situation as Americans? What I mean, look at, look at look well. I mean, look, but look at who is being elevated as the foremost quote-unquote European voices, if you want to put it in a cliched way. It's these Baltic countries and, you know, the, some of these more genuinely radicalized, like, Polish officials. I mean, they're supposedly New Europe, right? And they're, they're the ones who are the most stalwart allies now of the U.S. And, you know, we're, we're moving away from the old Europe of, that Donald Rumsfeld, you know, coined. And, you know, NATO now encompasses these countries uh, in, the, in, the, in, East, in the East. And so, yeah, I mean, for example, one of the event I, events I attended that I'm going to write about in more detail in a subsequent uh, substack was this random joint appearance of the uh, you know Canadian defense minister and the Latvian defense minister. And I got in a question with the Latvian defense minister, and I mentioned this last week, but you know his, his view of the situation is just as is just as sort of histrionic, maybe even more so than the U.S. And these Baltic countries have gradually built up their influence within, for example, NATO to the point that they can help dictate collective priorities to some extent or at least influence the U.S. in its conception of what those priorities ought to be. So I think, you know... um, yeah, there are some European officials who probably are going to be more wary than those uh, Baltic countries. There definitely are. Um, you know, maybe some Germans, for example. Although there was this German, you know, defense minister who was also present at, at the NATO summit who was the most aggressive uh, amongst the German ruling coalition, as I understand it, in casting Russia in the most kind of aggressive possible light. So, I, you know, I think I think the... The most influential European officials now are the ones who do have the most American-like interpretation of the situation. Um, you know, you know, if you're talking about the wider European public, I'm not going to really generalize about that because you know, I, I mean, how 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 could I? I just think that of of those who played the most prominent role at the NATO summit. Yeah, I mean, they, they they are kind of singing the same tune as as the U.S. because you know, the U.S. sets the agenda, and everybody else pretty much falls in line. They use whatever leverage they have within this sprawling coalition to kind of in, uh, shape those priorities. And the ones who have playing the most outsized role in shaping those priorities now are the most radicalized portions of Europe, like. The Baltics and uh, Poland and whatnot. Uh, Phil, I think you dropped out. Richard, are you still there? Oh yeah, I'm here. Okay. 
Uh, Phil, I apologize. It looks like you uh, you might have dropped out with your connection. So hopefully that answer sufficed. Uh, Richard, do you have a thought about what I just uh, said there? Uh, not really. I mean, the yeah, the Pope Baltic countries. I mean, are you know, it's sort of like a system. It's like you have you have NATO, you have Jen Stolzberg. You said he wasn't important earlier, but he actually is because he sort of shapes the coverage of uh, how we see NATO um, in the media. It's all he's always making the most bombastic sort of hawkish kind of statement that gets quoted in the media. Um, the media, you know, like you've covered, I mean, is basically uh, always pushing for NATO to do more, to be more aggressive towards. Um, towards Russia now, China, um, and so you have the media, and then but then you have the Baltic states, and so like when they are, you know, when they're when they're the most, you know, the, they're the most aggressive members of sort of the NATO alliance. They're the ones who get the, all the media appearances. They get you know disproportionate attention. Uh, you know, if somebody like the Germans or the French, you know, they're either they're ignored when they want to take a you know less aggressive position, or they are. Um, you know they're criticized for it. They're they're portrayed as weak and failing in their democratic duties. Mm. Uh, so it, I think it really is the um, you know I really think it's sort of the media that's at the center of this, and it elevates the voices that are uh, you know that are um, on the same page with it. Yeah, I mean just to be clear, I wasn't saying that Jens Stoltenberg is in every sense unimportant. I said I, I was trying to say that he was unimportant relative to the actual military command structure of NATO. Yeah. Which, 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 you know, the a U.S. general ultimately runs, who reports to Biden. So, so that, that, in that sense, Jens Stoltenberg is not important. Um, but you know, he obviously has some other important functions. But they're all ultimately subservient to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, just a quick, a quick point about the topic of the room or the uh, title of the room that I chose in my cheeky way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it, I, I. I Put it that way because, you know, one of the takeaways from this summit is this idea that now Russia and China are being indelibly bound together as enemy targets of NATO. And it really underscored the superficiality of the American media questioning at this event because, you know, on the one hand, you have NATO trumpeting that now it's tied together Russia and and China in, in sketching out the contours of a future potential global war, you know, World War Three or what have you. And meanwhile, all Kelly O'Donnell can do of NBC is think to ask about abortion policy in the U.S. Uh, so obviously she has no uh, understanding or competence that would be required to grasp the, mm. de- the significance of the details of what actually emerged substantively from the summit. And interestingly... Um, Yesterday, so as the conservative government in the UK was collapsing, the FBI director, Christopher Wray, made an unprecedented trip to London. So he made an appearance in London at a business gathering alongside the director of uh, MI5, you know, the equivalent organization in in the UK, where they did a joint appearance warning about China, and their warnings really echoed the warnings of NATO. Um, they said, "Look, I mean, you, you, you companies better think twice about engaging with China because of their economic espionage that's ramping up, and they're now um, supporting Russia and Ukraine, etc." 
So, I mean, I'm not asserting that there's any necessary connection between the collapse of, uh, you know, the of Boris Johnson's cabinet and this sort of random and strange appearance by the FBI director in London. And they claim it's the first time that the heads of these two agencies have ever, ever done a joint appearance together because they usually are, you know, in the background. Um, but it is, it is, you can already see, I guess, the beginnings of how this sort of great power competition that's being posited as the new posture that the West is in versus Russia and China, how it is taking on more and more forms um, and the kind of, you know, the contours of it are being more and more crystallized. I don't know, uh, Richard, did you, did you see, happen to see anything about that? Uh, I just I just heard about the uh, the joint press conference, yes, and I thought it was uh, I thought it was odd. I mean, one thing about the pivot towards China, I always thought this would you know happen because I thought when people got sick of the war on terror in the Middle East, and that was no longer a justification uh, for you know big military budgets and giving these people uh, something to do, um, it was really with the decline of terrorism and it, it, as an issue that China sort of rose up and China became uh, sort of like the center of American uh, supposed American strategy. Um, so yeah, I think there I think there is you know, and it's like it's a very strange stuff. I mean, the fact the idea that. Because of you know economic espionage or whatever, like NATO would talk about you know countries becoming dependent. You know, NATO, China. You know, the NATO was not about you know uh, originally in most of its history was about deterring an invasion, a strictly military alliance, not a grand strategic alliance that makes economic policy and uh, uh, you know uh, it has its uh, hand in propaganda and PR. I mean, NATO PR is. I mean, it's. Uh, I don't know if it's good or bad, but it's you know it's they put a lot of money and effort into it it's clear if you look at the nato videos i mean they're very uh they're very slickly uh produced i mean they're you know they they uh uh they they, um you know they have they have a message they have you know all this politically correct stuff they talk about gender and nato and so it's you know it's really just an organization that is not like a military alliance it's sort sort of something like a it's sort of like a like a you know it's sort of like a uh, government in and of itself that has like its own foreign policy and its own sort of uh, grand grand strategy. Even though I, I hate that term, um, I, and, uh, I don't like that concept, but you know to the extent that exists, and NATO seems to seems to have that, and it seems to you know just be going around justifying its own existence. And this wasn't the point of NATO. I mean, the NATO was a military alliance to do military things with the politics. Uh, a foreign policy being done in a normal way through countries, through diplomats and leaders, but you know more and more it's taking on a role of its uh, a role of its own. Like I want to know who the you know I, I you know if we had real reporters like you know rather than these people asking about you know uh, the Supreme Court decision on abortion, they would find out like how did this become a thing? How did China become the focus of NATO? I mean I haven't maybe somebody has done that that work but was it the biden administration was it bureaucrats in nato itself was it stolenberg i like we have no idea um sort of who was the driving force behind this and that would be something that would be very interesting to know yeah yeah um i i tried to probe tentatively at that question as best i could but I, I don't have a full answer either. Um, so, all right, uh, Sheila, you are up. Well, I, I thought it would, might be a good idea to ask you guys a softball question to get ready for for foreign foreign policy debates and and interactive. Like, just chuck my 
softballs at you guys to see what would actually go or or qualify as a good, you know, international softball because nobody's reporting on on ambassadorships. They're not reporting on like you you brought up China and you know there was a big investigative uh, journalist led investigation in the Cullen investigation in in Vancouver. Okay, this is this is based on uh, the, the the work of the United Front Work Group, which is basically an outcropping of the consulates, the Chinese consulates. Okay, so they sent in people into the community, and they made uh, you know Chinese relationships with other Chinese people in Vancouver, which happened to be loan sharks and and uh, uh, Sunyi on like triad drug dealers and 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 kept it going. Um, and they they made sure to take uh, lots of photos with people like Justin Trudeau and and uh, you know grease the wheels and and get politicians elected in local government positions um, as much as they could. And so, I mean, in that way, you know, the the Chinese government, the PRC government is kind of insinuating itself into Western politics. I mean, you can't ignore that. Um, You know, it is invasive and they are using narco cartel monies to do it. maybe that has something to do with, you know, five eyes and the fact that people are kind of not noticing it. Um, the fact that the DEA hasn't really kind of gone into such a, you know, stronghold like Vancouver and just, you know, uprooted everything. Cause that's what they're scared to death. That's what they say they're scared to death of doing. So, so why do you think that hasn't happened? I mean, we've, we've got all these, you know, strategic, in influences we've got we're up the wazoo with like a ton of surveillance mass surveillance to to catch all the bad guys through counterterrorism. uh so so why isn't anything being done experts why i don't know but it, it seems like uh so should they say abe now is showing no final vital signs does that mean he's dead oh god that's not good man that's that's bad news yeah that means you're that means that nothing yeah news. so Okay, well, well. I mean, let's 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 not report that he's dead here if that's not confirmed. Well, no, but, it's the Washington, yeah. Washington Post uh, says that the Japanese state media says he has no vital signs. So it's a direct quote from the Post. That's just rumors. That means you're dead, right? I think so. That's all the all the Post <laughs> says. Shouldn't they notify yeah. the family and all the journalistic ethics and the, all of that? Here, I just I just. Uh, I just tweeted it. So if you wanted the exact quote and the exact link, a short time later, NHK reported that Abe was showing no vital signs. So that's from the Washington Post. You can go to my Twitter. It's yeah, it's right there. Um, it, said he he, it said he it said he was shot from behind with a shotgun. Yeah, yeah, I think that. Yeah, that's uh, that is yeah. not good. <laughs> that is not a good. That's not a good outcome. Well, I wonder what this is. Uh, you know, I wonder what this is about. You you usually don't think about Japanese politics as that. Uh, as that um, well, yeah, uh, like, let's like, uh, let's let, let's let's be aware of a, a potential Franz Ferdinand moment. Actually, you know Shin, Shinzo Abe, he's uh, he's not <laughs> down. Ferdinand? Who do you think you think he was some kind of? Whoa, 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 who was? How would this be a Franz Ferdinand moment? Well, I mean, because for the for the assassination of Franz Ferdinand was just kind of a random event that. Sparks. Yeah, but it was it was from a, yeah. who, it was from a Serbian national. Who's the nationalist? What's the? What's well, the I, I, I said I, I don't know. I'm just saying, you know, 
maybe this could be some kind of spark of something. I don't know. Yeah, um, that's probably, I, Shinzo I Abe, actually, he's uh, he's um, he's still a serving politician, so he's still like, in the in the parliament. Um, so this would be an assassination of a serving of a serving official, even though he's not the current. Prime yeah, do you know how few the murders there are in Japan, Japan a year. Like I think with like gun yeah, how do you even like, get a sh- how do you even get a shotgun there? <laughs> I, I, do they, are they not allowed like shotguns Ask for the hunting? Yakuza? Like, yeah, well, do they just use all swords? Or is, is that just war? Well, I, I thought uh, I thought gun laws were pretty strict in Japan, but I'm, I'm not that familiar with them. Uh-huh. Uh So yeah, I, as far as uh, yeah, okay, so that's gonna be a, that's gonna be a big story, uh, Sheila. Um, I don't. I haven't read about the Chinese sort of using the mob to take over Vancouver. I know there's a lot of Chinese people in, uh, buying houses, uh, investing in land, whether that's yeah, directed not, by the Chinese government. They're not government. Just normal Chinese people, man. They're, 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 they're people who came in claiming to re- be refugees who already were stacked and loaded in the field of narcotics. Uh, okay. Well, I haven't, yeah, I, I have not read about what's going on in Vancouver if you have, you know, some report well, on I, that. Well, I just yeah. spent, like, I don't know, 17 days straight on Colin doing nothing but reading the whole of of uh, Sam Cooper's book, Willful Blindness. Okay, you know, so this is just, about... This just is about to convince Trump. myself and everybody else. You know, like, I, I read it. Anybody who was listening to me also read it. And so, so that it could... No one could gaslight me into to saying, this is not real. So... Okay, so Go this ahead. book is about Chinese in Vancouver or the what or uh, Canada? Yeah, the US? PRC. It's it's serious. It's like the PLA, you know, the 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 their army, their their veterans or expats, their consulate officials, the United Front Work Group, uh, doing direct business with the Sunni on triads of Hong Kong, um, laundering tons of drug money. Like basically becoming the cash bank, using the casinos over there, and they launder everything coming over the border from Mexico. Like everything, it's like El Chapo, that was their cash bank. They just sent it straight to Vancouver. Latin American cartels all get it done through Vancouver. Okay, well, yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's a. Um... A NATO or a foreign policy angle to that seems like sort of the uh, regular. Well, I mean, it's a national security uh, flaw for sure because they were they were definitely influencing or co-influencing uh, Trudeau and in getting him involved. Uh, they they banked part of his policy. They were involved in direct politics and financing campaigns. Yeah, I I, I don't know Canadian politics. I, well, I, 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 I I personally don't feel that my national security. That my personal security is that really, that threatened by China at the moment, despite these growing warnings. But you know, I'm open to have more evidence on that front. Okay, thanks, Sheila. Hi. And um, we skipped. Out. We already had Phil, so let's finish up with um, Alex. Yes, hello, Michael and Richard. Um, can you guys hey. hear me? Yep. Yes. Okay. Yes, I guess I had a question about like um the whole NATO front with um, antagonizing China. I mean, it's like you guys said, I think last week is the North Atlantic and China's across the Pacific. Have they also mentioned anything about um, some of the other countries that didn't really join in on the anti-Russia front, such as India at the conference, Michael? 
Um, I didn't come across anything that was specifically related to India, but you know, I only saw or experienced a small portion of what went on at the conference. I'm sure it was probably discussed, but you know, they were touting that they had, for the first time, invited at a head of state or head of government level the leaders of Japan, South Korea, Australia, and New Zealand, in part to kind of underscore their supposed commitment now to the Indo-Pacific to confront and reign in China. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the non-participation of India and the, um, the unwillingness of India to accede to U.S. slash NATO demands on the China and, uh, or on the, at least on the Russia front in recent months, that was kind of, I would think would be the elephant in the room. Um, but to my knowledge, it wasn't really brought up. Like, I don't know how they suppose they're going to be launching this new initiative in that part of the world without any kind of cooperation from India. Well, do they need India? I mean, they can go confront China with Japan and I don't know, Korea doesn't seem to want to confront China, uh, but like, with, you know, just Japan and, you know, sailing out and sending ships through the South, you know, ships of NATO countries through the South China Sea. Yeah, you know the way you put you the way you talk about. It, I mean, it's basically pageantry, right? It's a big sort of PR conference for uh, for NATO. They're uh, uh, trying to put the you know most uh, you know the, the sort of the, show the best image of themselves to the world and their agenda and what they're doing. So it makes sense. You wouldn't invite India. You wouldn't bring you, you wouldn't bring rancor, right? Um, you wouldn't bring some kind of country that's not on board completely with what you happen to want to be doing right now. Uh, so it makes, I mean, it makes sense. I, I think that, you know, yeah, you're not gonna, I mean, you're not gonna, I mean, to have this country of one billion, you know, one plus, one billion plus uh, people, uh, and it's not on board uh, with sort of even what you're doing with Russia. Um, yeah, that's, that doesn't look good. I think that, that sort of, that is gonna, uh, that they, you know, that's sort of gonna change the entire narrative of the, of the conference. Well, I mean, it's pageantry, but it's pageantry in service of sort of uh, of advertising what appears to what appears to be a genuine coalescence of new military priorities on the part yeah. of the quote West. Right. So yeah. So, but you're not going to make India be on board by at the conference, like if they're, if they're not. No. You know, no. So yeah. So the best thing you can do for for the set. For the sake of you know PR reasons, is to just to keep them away, right? You don't have like, a, yeah. I mean, it's Korea. It was Japan. Was there another East Asia? It was just Korea, Japan, right? Yeah, South and Korea, Australia, Japan, Australia, uh, Australia, and New Zealand. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Australia, New Zealand are always on board with this. The, the Korea thing is interesting because it switches based on which party is in power: the uh, conservative and the liberal party. I, I think I think it's just because maybe because the conservatives just came into. I don't think he's been inaugurated though, right? The conservative uh, winner, the guy who won the election in South Korea, is it still? No, I thought I, I, I thought I thought he was in office now. Yeah, no, he's in office because um, Biden okay. traveled well, to sense. South Korea shortly after he took uh, he took office and did a press conference with him and that was that was sometime in may so yeah okay so yeah it makes sense why korea's uh, is uh is um you know is taking a more hawkish view towards china but that could change with the next there's not widespread agreement for that position that could change with the next election um and then japan is just this weird thing where it's it's a very sort of top-down consensus you know it's a driven thing where it's like everyone is you know pro-american and pro-pro-nato um 
But yeah, it's uh, it's a strange thing. I wonder what the steps are going to be. This is, uh, you know, an extremely uh, to go back to the point. This is an extremely underreported uh, story because it's, um, you know, it's like what do we have going for us? We have a few newspaper articles where they say NATO wants to focus on China, um, and then we have, um, you know, like a couple paragraphs or one paragraph in the report that NATO put out. Um, and that's re- and that's really all we have. We have no idea what this means, right? It's just very broad, like, you know, don't do business with China. China is bad. We're going to push back against them. But it, it, there's no, like, actual concrete steps. And also China hit. must be punished. What they're saying is China essentially must be punished for aiding Russia. I mean, that, well, that, yeah, that's that's like, the new uh, development. So that's that was like one part of it, right? But it was like a bunch of other stuff, too. And it seemed like it was just like sort of an excuse. I mean, it doesn't seem like it was like uh, that's the this is you know this is clearly something they wanted to do, um, a- anyway. Uh, and so like this, this is a big deal. This should be report. This should be the big you know this should be one of the big stories. I mean, of the NATO conference, it should be seen skeptically for all the reasons we've talked about, and we should know more about it and you know what the justifications are for what they're doing and what's planned but no no we're we're in the dark because because the the journalists are you know interested in american culture war stuff or propping up what data wants to do anyway so it's, it's yeah. really it's a shame. well the well the actual wording in the strategy decree is that nato is now going to be marshalling its resources for quote high intensity war fighting against nuclear armed peer competitors which you know yeah. seems to be a not so subtle reference to yeah. both China we and Russia. Talk, we should maybe say something about the the Ukraine war. So I mean, they, yeah, yeah, I was uh, just going to ask uh, you to summarize that uh, that report. Uh, so yeah, Russia. I mean, Russia has uh, captured Luhansk. Well, basically, I mean, the report is just about you know supporting. Uh, you know, there's a British uh, war ministry report uh, basically about uh, you know needing to support Ukraine. It's about how the war is going. Uh, but in the news of the, you know, what's happening in the war, Russia conquered Luhansk. It's apparently got, you know, it's got the, like, the sort of the stated goals are, you know, the minimum to sort of declare some kind of victory is Luhansk and Donetsk and Donetsk. I mean, there's only a few uh, cities left and they've started shelling them already. So, I mean, Russia could before long have basically uh, Luhansk and Donetsk. And then, it, you know, the question is, is that like, like, do we just keep going? Like, or is, is, you know, is that seen as like an opportunity, um, to make, uh, to make, uh, some kind of, to find some kind of agreement? Um, but yeah, I mean, there's no like, um, you know, there's a, like at some point Ukraine might be able to turn around. There's no evidence that that's happening. I mean, even today when like there has been a break after the capture of Luhansk, there's a, uh, uh, it, you know, the Institute for the Study of War, even they are saying that basically Russia is shelling and like uh, shelling across the front. So it's not like Ukraine that's, you know, shelling and probing and trying to, you know, uh, push push things. It's still, it's still Russia. The momentum is still completely with Russia. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think this is, um, you know, the, the and so if this doesn't turn around, I mean, we talk about, we talk, we've talked about a lot, I think, like how long the, you know, the um, sort of media obsession and the interest in Ukraine can last. If they continue to lose and, you know, not really stem the tide for three, six months, I mean, I think the mood on this can change a lot. Yeah, you know, when, when Russia captured Severodonetsk, you saw it being sort of downplayed by some of these 
military experts that are always called on for their commentary on TV and social media and everything. By, and they were saying, well, yeah, they may have captured Severo Donetsk, but the real prize would have to be Ly- Lychansk, which is this sort of, yeah. I guess, <laughs> adjo- yeah. adjoining city. Yeah. And that's going to be much more difficult for Russia because the terrain is different and like, the river is situated in such a way where it would be harder to actually secure that city and uh, you know so we should not really pay much attention to this gain in severodonetsk because look what they're in for over this river and then they just capture like chance with really hardly any struggle i mean i'm sure there was the casualties incurred and whatnot but it didn't seem like it was really that their ability to capture like chance was very much impeded by the terrain um, and so, I mean, it, I guess it just underscores the ridiculousness of so much of this expert commentary in that happens in real time. And then, you know, once a, an assumption is disproven, you know, the experts just keep pontificating. Yeah. Well, they say, I mean, they keep saying like, oh, this doesn't really matter, you know, for the course of the war. And like, you know, okay, but like, what does matter? I mean, it's just, it's just about land. I mean, it's just land, right? It's just like, you know, these, these, you know, it doesn't matter that if it doesn't matter for Russia, it doesn't matter for Ukraine either. Apparently these places are getting destroyed and they're getting emptied out. Um, so like, if the goal of the whole war is like land, then that's like sort of the entire point of the, uh, of the war. Um, of course it matters in the context of the war, even though the whole war itself might just be stupid um, from the perspective of either side or, or both sides. But we might be seeing, I mean, Ukraine, I mean, the the sort of the, um, we might be seeing, uh, you know, like a, a more general problem here is that there's, you know, there's not a lot of manpower left. There's not a lot of the, the ones, the men, or maybe there is, but there's not very good training. The stories that have been appearing in the American uh, press, um, about like you know the difficulties the Ukrainians are facing, how they don't have uh, ammunition and they don't have uh, uh, any you know any training. They're sort of these territorial defense forces to, uh, fight for being uh, sent to fight far from home, and so you know we don't know like how much you know fight that the Ukrainians have. It's impossible to, uh, to predict these things, um, you know, and so so we'll see. I mean, the idea that. Uh, you know that I, you know, the idea they, they've been saying pretty much from the start, not from the start, but like from like a month or two into the war, um, that uh, you know time was on the Ukrainian side because they had unlimited, you know, American. Um, uh, you know, this became the narrative maybe two, maybe two, three months into the war. They had unlimited Western support, um, and you know, I guess you know they'll eventually turn the tide in their favor. But it, it doesn't, it doesn't look like that. I mean, at least in the short run, it's been moving towards Russia's. Uh, direction, and you know, we'll see. We'll see if it continues. Yeah, you mentioned. You know, would the capture of these two provinces be the precursor of some sort of deal? And it may be, but I really haven't seen many indications. No, many of that being possible. Like Olaf Schultz gave an interview to. CBS uh, on Face the Nation this past Sunday, and it seemed like he did. It was in English, which is sort of interesting. I wasn't even aware that he spoke fluent English. But oh, well, everyone it, in Germany and government speaks some kind of English, I think. Well, I mean, Mer- Merkel really didn't speak enough fluent English that I yeah, think she could true. have done like a full, um, full US TV interview in English. Uh-huh. Um, but anyway, he, he did this interview, 
And I th- the point of the interview seemed to be for him to demonstrate that he was more in line with U.S. thinking on this Ukraine issue than might have been assumed given all the criticism of him for supposedly being too reluctant to send enough weapons and such. And one thing that he reiterated was, you know, Putin cannot be perceived to have gotten a victory out of the war. Um, So if there was anyone who you would expect might be involved in potentially brokering a settlement in relation to the capture of, you know, the Donbass, it would probably be Scholz. At least based on his recent public statements, I don't see much indication that even he is inclined to do that. So I'm not sure who would be leading this process of brokering some kind of settlement. Oh, uh, man, there's a, there's an Abe video of him getting shot. Okay. I, sorry, I'm sorry. I keep getting alerts for Abe. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I, was, I, was, yeah, I, heard, uh... all, I heard all that. No. Okay. Uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're right. You know, I was just... Uh, have you ever read the uh, the uh, books on uh, Lyndon Johnson by um, uh, Robert uh, Robert Caro? Uh, you know, I've had, I've never read those books. I've read you know uh, reviews of them or summaries of portions of them, but I've never actually sat down and read the books. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I'm uh, reading right now the um, the one on the, uh, uh, the the last one, which goes to like 1964, and it's you know has the you just went over the part about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and you look at the Cuban Missile Crisis, and they basically all they're worried about the whole time they're sitting there, you know, the people like Johnson was one of the people who wanted like to attack Cuba right away, and so did a lot of people in Congress. Um, and the you know, and the idea was always like the Russians are going to look tough, they're going to we're going to look like we backed out. It wasn't you know, it was like the missiles you know were were part of it too, but it was like every you know every single step was calculated from the perspective of. You know, we can't look bad publicly. Um, and, you know, whether this is like national pride or whether it's more likely it's just, you know, politics, people, politicians looking after their own interests. And that's why the deal that eventually worked out about taking the missiles out of Turkey, it's like, imagine, you know, they, that had to be secret. They couldn't be seen as uh, the Soviets getting something for, for aggression. So it's always you know, it's always sort of stupid. It's always the stupid of like, we can't, you know, even if the issue underlying doesn't matter, it's like, we cannot look bad um, in this situation. And therefore we have to keep escalating or not reach a peace deal or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, you're right. Cause now that I think about it, the Cuban missile crisis, I mean, they almost blew up the entire planet over, you know, this kind of, you know, image conscious stuff. Um, you know, would they let Ukraine bleed forever? Sure. Yeah. Well, what's the, What's the incentive to overcome their reluctance to, to reach a deal with Putin in that case? Yeah. All right. Well, uh, why don't we wrap up there and we'll follow the potential Japan assassination news. And maybe we'll, re- we'll reconvene tomorrow if a world war has started because of a Franz Ferdinand moment, which I acknowledge <laughs> is not probably an apt analogy, but it did spring to mind. Okay. Sounds good, Michael. Good, good All talking right. to you. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.